Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 415. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today bringing you a conversation with someone who has been my guest on Therapy Chat before. This topic is something that might make many of you who are listening uncomfortable, and I wanted to get that out in the open up front. We're talking about adoption, and my guest is someone who brings a less well-known perspective to the conversation about adoption that is very important for everyone to understand whether you are a therapist who, I mean, especially for therapists because you are working with people who are part of the adoption constellation, whether you know it or not, that's something that Brooke's going to mention. But if you work in an adoption program, if you are part of the Adoption Constellation, this could be valuable information for you to hear or it could be something that makes you feel really uncomfortable, in which case you're welcome to just pause and take care of yourself and come back to it when the time feels right for you. So first, I'm going to tell you about our guest. This week's guest was previously on Therapy Chat with episode 313, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Brooke Randolph, LMHC, LPC, LPCCS, a lot of initials, is founder and executive director of counseling at The Greenhouse, a boutique group practice with therapists in Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Texas, which is focused on working with the adoption constellation. Brooke's specialties are adoption therapy and brain spotting. She's a certified brain spotting trainer and consultant, coordinator for Brain Spotting Indie, and she's a certified Imago relationship therapist. Brooke has authored books The Bully Book, a workbook for kids coping with bullies, The Loss Book, a workbook for kids coping with loss, The Choice Book, a workbook for kids making choices, and she's a contributing author to Adoption Therapy. Perspectives from Clients and Clinicians on Processing and Healing Post-Adoption Issues, and the organizing editor of It's Not About You, Understanding Adoptee Search, Reunion, and Open Adoption. She's also authored adoption education materials for therapists and parents. Brooke herself adopted an older child internationally as a single woman through a pilot program and works to maintain an open international adoption. She's also a kinship care guardian. She'll talk about that in the episode. Brooke's passionate about promoting excellence in therapy, family preservation, and openness in adoption. And she has presented at numerous conferences and workshops throughout North America on a variety of topics. For myself, as a therapist specializing in developmental trauma and complex PTSD and attachment, I have worked with clients who were adopted and clients who were adoptive parents. And I've worked with children. I've worked with adults who were adopted in childhood. 
And I really became interested in this when I learned that adoptees have higher rates of suicide. I started hearing about people going back to the country where they were born, trying to find their birth parent with no information about the parent and how many people found that the parent had a different experience of placing that child for adoption than what the adoptive family was told and what the child had always been told about their adoptive parent and how deeply confusing, distressing, disturbing that felt for the adoptive adopted child, so the adult adoptee, as well as for the birthing parent. It just made me think about things that had never occurred to me before that because I really didn't learn much about anything but the general common perception of adoption. Although there is the book, The Primal Wound, which I learned about, and that made me understand that it can be a trauma. But that was a very beginning understanding for me, and I'm still in the beginning of my learning about this. So Brooke is an adoptive parent herself. She was a prior adoption agency owner. She is an advocate for all the members of the Adoption Constellation, and she's not on anyone's side in the process. She's just kind of laying out information for consideration that is often not discussed, and it's really important. So this conversation is not about shaming adoptive families, telling adoptees how they should feel, seeking to create distress and discomfort for anyone. What this episode is intended for is to give language to members of the Adoption Constellation who've had a sense of there being more to their story that no one was talking about, feeling that an injustice occurred, feeling something was missing or is missing, feeling something's not right. And it's really important to me and to Brooke to give voice to the reality of how colonization, patriarchy, classism, and racism fit into the picture of the Western adoption institution. And most importantly, this episode is intended to share with therapists that what we don't know about adoption can hurt our clients. Again, it's not simple. It's not black and white. It's actually extremely complex. There are a ton of variables that vary from person to person. It might bring up uncomfortable feelings for us. We may not want to think about the uncomfortable things that are raised in this conversation, but people are affected by these things. And this is for those people. So if this brings up uncomfortable feelings and you choose not to listen to it with much respect, I welcome you to pause, take care of yourself and check out some other episodes that are on related topics. Episode 303 was my interview with Amy Sugeno. From several years back, 303 is actually a replay where I put the two episodes with Amy together. Amy is an adult adoptee who adopted a child, and she talks about her experience, the challenges with attachment. She talks about that primal wound idea. And when I interviewed Amy, I really had no concept of the information that I've learned since following Brooke's work for the past few years. So in episode 313, that's my previous conversation with Brooke that played in 2021. And that may provide some context that could be helpful when listening to this episode, as well as last week's episode, episode 414 from last week on breaking cycles of intergenerational trauma with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. And episode 351, from a couple years ago as well, my conversation with Dr. Galit Atlas. Marielle Bouquet's book is called Breaking the Cycle, and it just came out. And she talks about some of these things and how intergenerational trauma affects us and how it can heal. And Galit, Dr. Galit Atlas talked about her best-selling book, Emotional Inheritance, and how family secrets can be destructive to 
Later Generations Mental Health. Also, in episode 257, I talked with author Mark Woolen, who wrote the book, It Didn't Start With You, which is on the topic of intergenerational trauma. So all of those may help make more sense of this complex information. And I welcome you to check them out and always use your own discernment to decide, does this resonate with me? Does it not? Brooke has Brooke Randolph, the guest for this week in episode 415, has so many resources available and uh, links to her website and her social media will be in the show notes. But the books that she's written, which I mentioned before, are valuable as well, including the one on adoptee voices that she contributed to the one called Adoption Therapy Perspectives from Clients and Clinicians on Processing and Healing Post-Adoption Issues. So I hope you will find this informative and valuable and and thought-provoking and that you may seek more information, especially if you're a therapist. Brooke has a training coming up in February, which we talked about at the end of the episode. Brooke's training is hybrid. It's available virtually and in person in Indianapolis, and she will be co-leading this training with Dr. Abby Hasbury, who's a transracial adoptee and birth mother, and it includes CEs. Days one and two are an intro to adoption competency for all therapists and students, including information about working with all members of the adoption constellation and those impacted by foster care, working with children, adults, and families racism in adoption and foster care, conceptualization, diagnosis, goals, and modalities for adoption therapy, research, history, and more. So if you attend just days one and two, you would get 14 CE hours through the University of Georgia School of Social Work. And then day three is for those who have completed brain spotting phase one, at least, although it's recommended phase one and two. So the third day is a brain spotting training that builds on the material shared in days one and two. And for brain spotting therapists, if you attend all three days, you get 21 C's. So I'll have a link to her training in the show notes. I'm going to be there. And I'm sure that after I complete that training, I'll be like, oh gosh, I was really, I did not know very much about this at all. So we're always learning and growing and there's no shame in that. We we do the best we can when we can do what we can do. And then when we learn more, we do better, as Dr. Maya Angelou said. So thank you for listening to this episode. If you do, thank you for, for listening to Therapy Chat all the time. And again, I hope you find something valuable here and talk to you soon. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Brooke Randolph for our second Therapy Chat interview. Brooke, thanks so much for being my guest again today on Therapy Chat. I'm excited to be back again. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy too. And just such a huge fan of the work you do and what you're putting out into the world. I feel like... For myself, you have really shown me so much that I didn't realize or understand about adoption and working with people who are part of the adoption constellation. And it's it's such important work because we know that particularly adoptees have been so much left out of the conversation when we're talking about adoption. You know, it's so much more focused on the adopting family usually. So I just, I, I'm excited to talk today about what therapists don't know about adoption and that can hurt adoptive yeah, families, people really who does. are part of that constellation. Yeah. And what, what we can do better as therapists. And I've just, I want to say thank you for listening and reading all the things I know Sometimes the things I share, like 
step on toes a little bit as we try to change the narrative. And I, I'm just glad that you want to learn. That feels great. Ah, thanks. Yes. Well, once it's like when you're doing decolonization work, it's like once you start seeing things that are unjust, you can't ignore it anymore. You can't unsee it once you've seen it. I think that's probably exactly how I felt about this. Like once you, once I started seeing what was, what was really there, you know, once you see behind the curtain, so to speak, you're like, you can't look away. We're going to have to do something about it. Yes, exactly. And so I know you have a training coming up that for people who are listening, as we're illuminating the challenges, there's also a lot of hope in the the potential for healing that's available. And so listen all the way to the end so you can find out about that. But Brooke, before we get into really talking about it, will you just tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do for those who might not have heard your first interview on Therapy Chat? Sure. I think this is the hardest part for me. So I am a therapist that specializes in in working with the Adoption Constellation and really enjoy also training other therapists and consulting, helping them to have a better understanding of all of their clients. And I think to me, that's the most important work. And I've been working in and around adoption a couple decades and I've done a lot of different things. But I think the most important part for me is all of the relationships that I've built in the adoption constellation in what we call adoption land online and hearing lots of different stories and lots of different perspectives so that you can under so I can understand more people. There is never like one size fits all in probably anything we do, but certainly when talking about adoption. Yeah, of course, because people are individuals and you know, we're no two people are the same and yet there's sort of a overlooked need that could really be illuminated and then, you know, changed, which is to hear the voices of people who've been adopted and what, what they, the experience was like to them. And I, you know, I just, it's, it doesn't really make any sense when you think about it, when adoption involves a baby or child joining a new family And yet most of the focus is not on, um, not to say they should be the only focus, but to overlook their needs is kind of, or to look at them in a very simplistic black and white way is, leaves a big gap. So, but let's, let me just ask you first, what, when you say adoption constellation, can you, can you explain what you mean by that? Some people really refer to the adoptees, the adoptive parents and birth parents But I think that simplifies so that I think when we think about if you say adoptive parents, you are often thinking of at least two. And sometimes we have blended families and so that or, you know, divorces and blended families. So that may be increased. People generally tend to just think about the birth mother, but there is a birth father and there are birth grandparents. There are biological and genetic relatives for generations. And often those people are playing a huge role in how this story played out. And so to not think about them as part of that whole constellation, I think we're missing things when it may have been a grandparent who really put their foot down about something and that resulted in the adoption plan. And I also think we need to keep in mind as as clinicians and thinking about the whole story and how it impacts the client in front of us no matter who that client is, but also recognizing that part of that constellation is the agency that was a part of this adoption and the legal proceedings because their policies may have played a role in how things played out. And also the the caseworkers, the social workers, who are the people who work for that that are involved because who they are and how they approach things also played a big role in this whole story. And so we have to kind of think about the entire constellation, even though we may be focused on that one part of that in with the client in front of us, but we know all of those other pieces are connected. Yeah. And there's, I don't know how you would fit this, but I mean, 
you said agency and legal proceedings, but there's like a system too. Child welfare system, foster care system are Mm -hmm. sometimes involved. And different states are different. I I don't know about all states, but I know in Indiana, like the head of DCS is a, I think a governor appointed position. So it it can they the whole system can change if the governor changes, and that I mean that can like we could have different policies, different procedures, different ways things are done. Yeah. So really, just to be very explicit there. If the person who directs the policy in the child welfare system for that state is a political appointee, then their decisions are made based on, I just think right away, like if they are very Mm anti-abortion, you know, like I know that's not part of this, but it's like these, the biases that each part of the system have play into what happens. I think it's good and maybe really helpful for you to bring that in because that's part of what it's harming so many adoptees is people are saying awful things like, well, wouldn't you, would you rather have been aborted? And mm-hmm. and some of them have to say yes, right? Because they're honestly answering. Mm-hmm. And that's like, then it just becomes this whole thing with everybody. So to really think about and how people are using adoption politically to say, well, this is the yes. answer because we don't want to be pro-abortion. So they're using that as the answer, and which may not feel good to some people, but is also then kind of creating this like, just this weird dynamic on people who are like, well, you don't want your baby. I want your baby. And we, I mean, this is like a false binary. It's such a false binary. And it creates this like, I don't know. There's so many false binaries, I think in it. Like, do you, do you want this child? Is the child value that that's not what we're saying. The choice. Well, I mean, that's getting, we'll just start getting really political, but I think that there's a lot of pieces and it puts people at odds with each other. And when they create this false binary, they're not looking at all the grays. They're looking black and white. And the truth is, and the way we truly understand and love each other is understanding their grays. Right. It's like, this is such a big, complex set of issues that are trying to be solved or addressed by this process of the child welfare system adoption, foster care. And I mean, when you put it that way, I want to challenge, like, what's the problem? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Because each of those systems are maybe trying to solve the, solve different problems. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Well, I think, yeah. So <laughs> the, the problem that, that I, I think what I was thinking of as the problem trying to be solved is, hmm, Yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot of aspects to this, but Mm -hmm. I think what I was thinking of is the problem. What I thought of was overly simplistic too. I mean, I'm not an expert on adoption, so I'm just trying to have a conversation to be, to Mm -hmm. learn, you know, and for all of us to learn. But but like, I feel like the problem is poverty, but it's also like inequality of, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's not just poverty, but someone having a pregnancy and that pregnancy has become, has created a new situation for them. I mean, I just feel like it's like people being under-resourced. Yeah. Now I feel stuck. (laughs) No, I mean. (laughs) That that was easy, huh? (laughs) But then it's like, so is is being under-resourced a reason to separate children from families and no, is that, yeah, that's is that, what I, that's what and, I think is an is injustice. How we want to, you know, how we want to deal with things. The, so there is an organization called Saving Our Sisters who works to support mothers who want to parent, but feel like they, they may be like either trapped or lost into the system of adoption. They ran their numbers over a year and they were, spending an average of $3,000 to allow a mother to parent. That's $3,000. Exactly. 
to think about that because they're like, well, I don't have a car seat and I don't have a this and I need, you know, I can't pay my rent if I have, because, you know, you can't go back to work. So, and the baby can't go to daycare for six, right? So we're going to have to pay at least two months rent. We're going to have to get, you know, a car seat. We're gonna, And they're, they're like, it's like $3,000. I mean, some of us take vacations from that are, cost more than that. And it's it's a, like literally a some of temporary us, problem for this mother. Is more than that. Yeah. So we're more, well, yeah. For one month. Yeah. yeah. And so that, and all it would, that's all it would take to allow this family to stay together permanently instead of being separated permanently. Right. Yeah. So I guess I was being far too, I don't know what the right word is, but I was, I was thinking too small about the, the way, you know, it is a many complex challenges that are involved in why these systems all exist. But, but I don't think you're thinking too small. I think it's that we, people saw one problem and started like, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. And it became this complicated system where that's, that's maybe creating problems that it didn't intend to. I think now there are people like Georgia Tan who did not have like who had ill intent, but most people have good intentions of trying to do something that is helpful. And we also don't always recognize how our good intentions have a different impact. I, I don't think I know. I don't know who that is. Oh, no. Um, Did I miss something really big? No, Georgia Tan is old. You've not, it's, this is not a like okay. pop culture <laughs> thing. So I think the book is called The Baby Thieves. And so Georgia Tan oh. was in Tennessee. And I'm unless I pull out my slides, I don't want to state years because I don't want to get it wrong. But she was the daughter of a judge and basically started or she she impacted lots of laws, including the laws around confidentiality, partially to cover up the fact that she was literally stealing children and selling them to Oh my gosh rich adaptive parents. Yeah. Wow. But even then, she probably thought she was doing something good because she believed that poverty was negative, much like Charles Brace, who did the orphan trains. Like, he was so classist. That's the reason he created the orphan trains was to get poor people out of his city. I feel like I got a lot to learn because I don't know about this either, but I will tell you there's a place near where I live. I think it sounds weird, but I don't understand. But if I'm when I'm about to say this, this might be like really upsetting to anyone who really knows more about it than I. So content warning, but there's this place that is a quote charity here called the orphan grain train and it just sounds like to me it sounds like some kind of it sounds very like just condescending to begin with I mean and I haven't heard people called orphans in a long time Mm -hmm. although you know it is a word but what are the orphan trains maybe we I should just ask you to tell us a little bit about the history of how the system came to be the way it is now if you can because you obviously know it like this. <laughs> <laughs> I know parts of it. I couldn't I couldn't name days off the top of my head. I would have to have my slides in front of me. But so oh, that's okay. I mean, that's it's fascinating because when I actually go through history, I start in well, you can actually go back to the Code of Hammurabi and start to see like how it started and and how it has changed. So like for example, this is one that is going to push people just a little bit, but I really like when they use the word adoption in the English translations of your Bible, the practice that was happening at that time they were referring to was when an, a rich man would adopt an adult man into his family for inheritance rights. And also to do the like caretaking of the old, right? But it was at that time, it was about keeping. So we'll take out, take it off theology. At that time, historically, it was about keeping the wealth in these and the wealth and power in certain families. So if there were too many, 
boys born into one family, we had to disperse them to other families so that they all their wealth wasn't like divided up. And if there weren't males in the family, then they would adopt those other of their rich friends. Now, personally, theologically, I actually think that preaches better, but I won't, you know, that that's not my lane necessarily, but I'm happy to have the conversation with people. But to think about that, it's it's not what we're doing now. And and even mm-hmm. when we go back to the original, the first time legally, globally, I think this was, I think it was first in Sweden. But when they talked about sealing records, it was the seal of a priest who was basically what they wanted was the midwives who helped with the birth of the baby would write down the name of the mother, the name of the baby, take it to the priest who would seal it and store it because churches store records. They still do. And that way that either the mother or the child could come and unseal the record at any time so that they like to prove who they were to find out for reunification. So they were doing it for the protection of the mother and the child, not to keep them separated. And that's part of how Georgia Tan changed things is she started to seal records for the protection of the adoptive parents. Mm. For the protection of the adoptive parents. Well, and for herself, because so then people couldn't come and (laughs) reclaim their children, right? Mm. Yeah. But you will still see today people who say, I chose inter-country adoption because I didn't want to have to deal with a birth mother. I didn't want to have to share you. I didn't want to, you know, it would always be closed. No one would come looking, which is, which is completely inaccurate. You, you can have open intercountry adoptions and sometimes people who aren't even know, not even planning on looking find. I just heard a wonderful story about someone who took a 23andMe test to get medical information and she was born in China and it popped up matches because her biological family had been looking for her because she had, it was not their choice to choose adoption. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're illuminating several examples that are one, one anecdote that involves many people when you Mm -hmm. think about it, like, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording how there is a very, strong history, I would say around the world, I only know some of the places and the dynamics, but of people not really being voluntarily choosing adoption, Mm -hmm. the birth parents not choosing it voluntarily, but having whether the child was stolen, Mm -hmm. there was a false pretense, which is stealing, you know, so culturally, we just think it's the baby or child needs a better life, a different life, better or different parents, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. would be the concept. But but then there's this whole piece of like involuntarily taking children away from their biological families and them being adopted, which adds another type of trauma for everyone involved. Sure. And then we get into almost human rights issues of, you know, growing up without knowing who you are. And if you don't know who your genetic family is, how do you know you're not dating a cousin or you don't have any access to medical records? I mean, there's just so, so many like possible problems that I think can come up. Can you say a little bit about the classism and racism aspects of the the systems involved in, I guess, historically and in present day with adoption? Sure. I mean, I think there are, like all things in this, there's complications. But when we are looking at, I mean, let's look at just inter-country adoption, that very much becomes white saviorism. This this belief that there's a better life in the West than in other places. And I would strongly challenge that. I'm not sure that we have a better life necessarily. And it's so colonial. Like, So my children are from Samoa. And so we 
not, number one, we spend a lot of time there, but like doing lots of reading and just looking at these like these ideas of missionaries and how they're supposed to come and change things. And it's just so, so, I mean, it's, it almost doesn't make sense to me. And then on the other side is thinking about the system as far as like the foster care system. I mean, I think classism and racism is baked in. The numbers are very clear that children of color are disproportionately taken from their families, placed into care. And the numbers, oh, I almost want to grab my slides to look at, of children who are removed simply for neglect, it's over 60% of of that that is the the reason. And when neglect can be, you know, lack of supervision, lack of provision, it can be cases where, you know, a parent is, I don't know, like drunk all the time and not meeting their child's needs. Sure. But often neglect is related to poverty. Or, you know, maybe they have to work multiple jobs and they don't have a support system or maybe, you know, whatever those kinds of things are. I, I know one family personally that who's truly just a, there's one parent that maybe didn't know enough about technology to provide supervision needed. And if we don't have, you know, like that's a where, shoot, isn't that a, it takes a village? Like you didn't know. Why didn't we just teach, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like so much because as I'm a single parent, but even just take that part out of it, just as a parent, there there are going to be things I don't know. And I I use my resources. I use the people I know to to learn about things, but we should do that for each other. I don't know if that's too kumbaya, but I just feel like why would you create all of this other stuff? There's so much, so many consequences to separating families when we could maybe just tea. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Yeah, I think to that, I think that when parents are unable to take care of their children, there's a reason. And oftentimes the reason is generational trauma, intergenerational trauma and abuse. You know, if the parent didn't get their needs met, why would they parent differently? What experience mm-hmm. would have given them the awareness that there is a different way that could be more effective at whatever they're trying to do. I mean, I think that maybe this is kumbaya, but I think that if people have what they need emotionally and physically, they will do well. They don't want, I don't believe that people are just out here wanting to hurt other people. I think we all just want to be safe and we love the people that are part of our family and we want them to be safe and close. And hopefully we have social supports and other extended people in our quote village or community that, you know, we care about and we wouldn't want to hurt other people. I think that, you know, we could be doing something about, we could be teaching people about how to parent you know, we only teach people how to parent when they have shown that they have some kind of deficit in that area, right? You need parenting classes. Mm-hmm. Why don't we all have parenting classes? We all need, you know, and we all need, I think we all should do continuing education in parenting because each kid is different. And there are things that I need to know how to do. I don't know what that, right? That other parents may not need to know how to do, right? There are certain things that I have to learn about that other parents are going to have to learn about different things. Mm -hmm. But figuring out, and we are all individuals, we don't fit molds and we have to learn how to meet our kids' needs. Right. But what we, I think one of the problems 
for children in general in our whole culture, aside from only adoption, but just all children, Mm -hmm. is that our culture says, you know, parents, adults are the ones who matter. Children are like little objects. I know it's changing, but, you know, certainly in my generation and I'm 51. No, I just turned 52. But the people I work with who are in their 40s and 30s, mostly, maybe if they're in their 30s, they may have heard a different perspective about what children need and that children have needs and that children's needs are important. But our parents, it was like, you know, children get them out of the way so we can live and I'm sure that's the way it was for them too. I know it was. So uh, it's, it's discouraging, but it's also like these things are so simple. Like we make everyone, you know, using like the vaccinations that kids need to go to school. We make everybody do that, but we don't teach people that, you know, how to respond in an attuned way to kids and what kids need and that hitting them doesn't, doesn't get what you desire from it. And, you know, they need attention and it's okay to give them attention. And, but, you know, I think about too, like, for example, this is like pop culture, but the MTV 16 and pregnant or teen mom, whatever, you know, some people are looking at that now and going, wow, these teens were documented their families had a lot of chaos and, and the, you know, teenager gets pregnant. And then some of them, like there was, there's one couple in the the story from the original show that put their child up for adoption. And it's like now they're rich MTV celebrities. And if they had had that money, then maybe they, Maybe they would have wanted, they didn't really want to do the adoption from what you saw. It was like mm-hmm. they did it because they didn't have another option. And yet, you know, how skewed is it that we don't, we don't surround the person, the, the person needing support at that time and their baby to come with support and resources so that they can do what feels right from what they really want, not from, well, I'm too poor to support another being, you know? Yeah. Like you were saying about that $3,000. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, people use the terms better life and they may not like the idea about what is it that this teen mom wants, you know, what is best for the baby. Well, we know through science that the amygdala is fully developed by the eighth month of gestation, that Children are primed in utero to attach to the biological mother. That is a, a survival thing. And so when they go through what I would imagine would be a pretty traumatic experience, right? They've been in this, their entire existence have been in this like personalized float tank where all their needs are met. And then they go through birth and there is nothing familiar, because they have been primed for the mother's smell, the mother's voice, taste, all of those pieces. And if that's not there, that amygdala is going on like high alert. And so it's, it is a trauma for the babies to be separated at birth because they, because they don't have the opportunity to, to be soothed from the trauma of birth that just that, that time together is beneficial. Yeah. So what would you want therapists who think they don't really work with the adoption Mm -hmm. constellation, what would you want them to know about what they should be aware of? Yeah. So first of all, you do work with the adoption constellation. You may not realize it because you didn't ask. (laughs) That's one of those things that's not on your intake paperwork, which is a really easy thing to add. But the numbers show that if you're working with kids, right, that those kids get drugged to therapy at higher numbers than others. And I, I use those terms on purpose, right? But we also know that there are greater numbers of people 
both adoptees and birth parents, greater numbers than the general population, right? Who are experiencing addiction and who are also, as we look at the LGBTQ community. So if that's your specialty, then you probably need to know a thing about that. The numbers are really pretty clear on those, that there are higher instances of eating disorders. And I mean, we talk about like complicated trauma. They're they're probably talking about family of origin issues, whether or not they tell you they're adopted. And then the one of the biggest, most important ones is that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide. And as clinicians, you have to know that because that that plays a role in all of your safety planning. That plays a role in understanding what are what are the actual risks here. And so then you start layering those things. They're adopted and they've got addiction concerns and they're they've recently come out and it wasn't well received. Man, that suicide risk just skyrocket. High risk. Very high risk. So one thing would be for therapists to ask mm-hmm. about adoption experiences and in beginning the work with anyone. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a very experienced clinician that I refer to frequently here that we were talking the other day and like she realized that they didn't have that question on their intake paperwork. And she was like, we didn't get till the end of it before I realized. And then we had to go back and ask all these other questions. And so just to have, I mean, I said, just put check check boxes at the top. Let them, you know, identify. And then that at least tells you you can ask more questions. Yeah. Mm, Such an important thing to assess or not assess if you miss it. Oh, yeah. So, So much you can miss there. And then for people who are either therapists who are listening or anyone who's listening who might be impacted by adoption, what would you say to them about like, the way the the healing process or what what a therapy journey could look like in because you know it's sort of like we're speaking about it and the the problems or deficits in those systems and yet we know that people can can heal from traumatic experiences but it's not like it's just a simple you know talking it through kind of thing because it's no and especially early early trauma early trauma right just talk therapy is probably not going to touch it some of this is just stored in the body but so we're gonna probably need something somatic something that is bottom up something brain-based one of the i think absolutely most important pieces is that and this is talking to like both sides of it that the clinician is culturally humble And when I say culturally humble, they don't just say, I don't know enough about this. Can you give me some books? Because that's putting the pressure back on the client to educate the therapist. And that doesn't feel safe. Someone can't be truly vulnerable in therapy if they don't feel like they are protected. I truly believe that it is our clinical responsibility to be educated, to continue to learn, and to seek consultation. And there's research behind this that says that, you know, we all know that the therapeutic relationship is a huge part of what makes therapy effective. Are you a relational therapist that is paying attention to what's going on between you and your client and how how you show up, how you are the tool? But also... The other thing that's showing up in research is what's called deliberate practice and how much are you thinking about your clients? Are you consulting with other professionals? Are you going to trainings? Are you reading books? Are you doing things to learn and to, to, I would even say self critique, you know, man, as I write my note, I think I missed an opportunity here. And most of us don't write notes that way because we just want to get rid- get them done. And I, I fully understand that's like 99% of us. But that that is like, doesn't that sound like the, the ideal? That's how we, we would be such great clinicians if we really took the time to think through it all the time. Mm. Oh, yeah, so the rest of the... So I would say like, 
a culturally humble therapist who's going to be willing to hear like, man, that hurt. That wasn't a good thing. Someone who's going to ask questions, not make statements. And that I think that's a whole journey in itself is being culturally humble. I think relationally oriented therapy is going to be super important. And like we said, something that's bottom up, something that's experiential, but very... And for me, it's super important that it is client focused, that it is individualized, that we are flexing with and following our clients, trusting them to know what's good for themselves. When you think about adoptees, birth parents and adoptive parents, they have all been part of a system that told them the way it had to be done. And some Mm -hmm. of them may have had more power in that system, right? If you're a newborn, you've literally had no say. And so there are different, they have different experiences in their system, in those systems, but those systems are telling them that they know what's best and that this is the way that it's done. And so for a therapist to come in with an anti-oppression mindset and to not put themselves as the expert, but recognizing that the client is the expert on their own experience, that in and of itself can be healing and certainly helps to combat that chronic infidelization of adoptees where they're constantly treated like children and and in in many different ways. So that's, I think, super important that we have that anti-oppression mindset and approach with people. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much built in here that's, oh my, it's just so deep. It's, it's really thought provoking. I'm so grateful. Every time I talk with you or learn from you in some way, I'm like, oh man, just think of something I hadn't realized before. And I'm grateful for the lived experience movement and the way it's been, you know, shaking things up in our field and letting voices that have had less power in our mental health field be being heard. The advocacy that people have been doing, I mean, it's not, it's huge. So gosh, I'm grateful to you and all of the people who've shared their experiences to help change things. Yeah. And then also, you know, the challenge for anyone who has their own lived experience as a clinician is to also, or sorry, you're, who is a clinician who has their own lived experience to also recognize that that is your lived experience and that there are so many variables in adoption and that there are lots of people with lots of different experiences. And so that deliberate practice for us is that we have to keep listening, keep learning, keep, you know, finding, you know, even like on my long list of CEs I want to do, right, is Sandra. And I I haven't told her this necessarily, but I plan on going to Cyber Starnes. Because she's an adult adoptee who does this work. She's an adoptive parent who does this work. And that's her area of expertise. If I want to learn about that, even if she's not talking about adoption, she's going to say something. Because I know I do in my other trainings. It just comes up. So just finding more ways to be exposed to more stories, more people. Somebody who maybe had an entirely different experience than you did. Yes. Do you know that she's right here where we are, where I am? I like, do. I mean, yeah. she's in, I think, the next county over. And such a, doing so much amazing teaching. So much. Mm-hmm. Santre is so powerful, but so is brain spotting. Not to dismiss Santre, but I just want to point out you, we didn't say this, but you are a certified brain spotting therapist. You're a consultant and a trainer, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So when I and, do brain spotting trainings, I mean, it's it's funny. Some of my, you know, just phase one, I've not planned on changing anything, but man, the demos, the people who show up to my training, it's uh, it's time after time 
something that's adoption related. So in the debrief, we also have to share, you know, explain parts of that to the other clinicians. But I'm grateful because then they see that there's more for them to learn. That just mm-hmm. that, oh, wow, I never thought about that until I watched this person process. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to say, like, as a parallel process, this conversation where I'm learning so much and I'm and I feel like, oh, man, I said the wrong thing or I didn't know that thing or whatever. And then I'm like, don't be so comfortable what you do know. Be happy that you're learning something new because that means you're growing. and, And we would prefer because our jobs are hard as therapists, we would prefer like we know it all and we now we can do it and, you know, don't really seek out experiences that challenge us in what we think we know or, you know, what we've got all figured out. But that's where, I mean, that's where the humility is, is we have to be open to reconsidering things that we hadn't thought of and don't think you got there and then, you know, you don't need to learn anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's just, I don't, I, to me, there's always, the more you know, the the more you know, you don't know. You, the more you know, yeah. there's so many other experiences. And there's, for me, it's, I'm constantly seeing like, oh, look at that assumption you made. Like, quit making those assumptions. Like, you could do better than that. Like, why, why would you just, you know, assume that they meant this. And so learning to just ask everything. But it's freeing also for me to just be like, mm. Listen, this, these are the things that often are, but often are true. But is that true for you? You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I hear people say this. Is that what you're thinking? I don't More like know. a that, starting that feels point good and a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of a, yeah. I bet you thought, or I bet one of the, you know, inter- what would they call it in grad school? Like an interpretation, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I do those so much. I wonder, I might say that, I wonder... Or just those little things to me, it it feels better to me to present in that way than trying to pretend I know everything. Yeah, well, I agree. And so let me say, let me ask you to tell a little bit about this upcoming training, because I want to be sure people know this exciting thing you're doing. I'm going to be there and I can't wait to really blow my mind even more. <laughs> right. And so then I can give you actual numbers and actual dates on things <laughs> because it's written down for me. Yeah. I, I'm not someone who ever trusts the numbers in my head unless I, I'm like, I know where to find that. I'm just going to keep record. I have a five page bibliography for this training. So I... We know you know um, your stuff. It's okay. I don't give a lot of credence <laughs> to the dates and stuff anyway. I don't memorize like that. That's not how my brain works. Oh, but I think it's also important to cite your sources. Yeah. So, and to, and for me to be able to answer questions, I will get questions. Most recently, it was a local adoptee who I've not met, but follows me on social media and said, I heard this from somebody. Do you have any research on it? And I was just like, yes. And I just like, here, here are three references that I have that I mean, because it's just here for me. So that's helpful that I didn't have to go and refine them. Like I know these things are true, but I need to also keep my rep, or at least for me. So as a, a brain spotting trainer, I do the brain spotting or what was called the brain spotting with adoption specialty training. And we have kind of changed that to setting up brain spotting with the adoption constellation. And that's just been a great training that's been wonderful. But what we know is that all therapists need this information, that we are not taught in graduate school, that we, the narrative in our culture about adoption isn't particularly helpful, and that there's such a wide range of experiences that we all need to hear different parts of it. So I really wanted to expand it in a way that we could open it up to all therapists and students I like giving students who are eager and ready to learn and maybe haven't developed habits. Or I think one of the great things about students is they really appreciate that they may not be too experienced yet. Some of them think they are, but most of them realize they're, they're not very experienced. And so they're 
they have less of those like cognitive biases to get mm-hmm. past. And so they're just open to learning. So the with this training, I am working with Abby Hasbury, who actually lives near you now too. And she is a transracial adoptee and she is a birth parent. And she is one of my very dear colleagues that I speak to often about all kinds of things. And so she's just a wealth of knowledge in lots of areas and has done lots of research. And so she's such a great addition. And so we're doing this with two days, this two-day training that are open to all therapist students who want to be a part of this. And they can do it in person in Indianapolis or they can do it via Zoom. And so it'll be a hybrid training because we know different people like different experiences. And then we have a third day that is um, focused on the brain spotting aspects and some techniques and some variations of things in brain spotting that, that we recommend for working with the adoption constellation. And I would say they really work for all kinds of complicated relationships, not, not just, you know, like I've had therapists who come to the training and they're, they do their work around their own sibling that they were raised in their biological family with. But that's a complicated relationship for them. So I think, you know, the techniques we use in brain spotting can be applied in multiple ways, but the, that's the framing of it. And so we've put all of that into the third day for the brain spotting therapist to, to get that piece also. Okay. And so what I saw was that therapists who attend day one and day two who are not trained in brain spotting can get CEs for the two days and therapists who Mm -hmm. are trained in brain spotting can attend all three days and get an additional day's worth of CEs for that. Right. Right. So it's, it's 14 CEs for the first two days or 21 for all three days. And that's just built in to the whole part of it. It'll just be kind of automatic for people. Great. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, looking at the description of the training, I thought it just looks so excellent. And again, even if people don't think they're working with adoption and adoption is not at play in any way with the people that they're working with, there's so much, so much to think about that you're teaching here and with, with Abby and I can't wait. I'm so excited about it. (laughs) Good. Yeah. And I think it's important. Sometimes like people will say, you know, I don't work with that population because they think when you say adoption, they mean kids and families. And the constellation is large and we want to, we want to be able to meet the needs for all clients. So there, we're going to talk about really important aspects and things to consider for all members of the adoption constellation. And so even if you're just working with adults, You're definitely working with adoption in some way, and this will be beneficial. So where can people find your training and all of the amazing things that you are doing? Sure. So my website is brooke-randolph.com, and they can find links to all the trainings there. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, and I am on Threads, which is primarily a place for me to learn right now, but I would really enjoy conversation. So if people want to, I feel like there there's some real benefits to threads and having good conversations that I, I'm hopeful that it becomes a platform people use. Yeah, it looks promising. It could be. <laughs> yeah. Right now, what I get is I'm learning from people with lived experience of neurodivergence. And that has just been excellent learning for me. Awesome. So I will put links to all of your socials and your website in the show notes. And of course, I'll put a link to directly for people to sign up for your training too, if if they're interested, because it's happening. We didn't say this, but it's happening in February 2024. And it's the next time it's happening, the one that we're talking about, but you offer this ongoing. So if people are listening after February 2024 and interested in doing training with you, they will be able to find it there. Yeah. 
So Brooke, I just want to thank you again for being my guest on Therapy Chat today and talking with me a lot longer than we originally expected. So I'm very (laughs) grateful that you were able to be flexible with your time as well. Thank you so much. I love it when I know someone wants to hear things and not just to rely on their the narratives of the things they know. For me, that's so refreshing and freeing, you know, as someone who lives this, there's so many times people in the general public will just say things that I have to just, you know, they don't really want to be corrected. So, you know, (laughs) you just don't. (laughs) But I have like, I have a whole post that was me. Some people found controversial, but I started with, you know, on Mother's Day, I said, you know, I lied to another rugby mom today. I think that's how I started it. Talking about like, somebody told my kid to say Happy Mother's Day. And I was like, man, we, we can't do that. Right. And so that for this child, right, that's not going to be helpful. And so that's where that whole post went. But I don't even know how I got onto that little topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, the idea that people can be very firmly dug in on the narrative that they they have. And I think that's, it does feel a little bit controversial to challenge these popular narratives, but it's worth it because, again, I keep feeling that there's there's so many voices that haven't been heard mm-hmm. historically. And if if we can get the whole picture out there, it's maybe not as neat and tidy as the current cultural narrative, but it's it's real and it's the perspectives shared are very important and needed to be heard. Absolutely. And I think there's so much more beauty, compassion, understanding, like you can have real relationships when you can be real with people and understand their real truths. All right. Thank you again, Brooke. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.